Hi, everyone, and welcome to the American Ambulance EMS podcast. I'm Dr. Danielle Campaign, your American Ambulance Medical Director. Um, I'm here with our two awesome co-hosts, uh, Dr. Sajin Bhatka and Dr. Patil Armenian. Hi, everyone. Hello. Today, we are going to be talking about non-accidental trauma or child abuse. Who serves a million people in the valley? We do. The brave men and women of the double A are the best at what they do in EMS today. The finest place in the world to be is right here as a part of American's family. Help is on the way, got a unit and route. No matter the problem, when in doubt, we send them out. Sure as the sunrise, sure as I bust this rhyme, 10 minutes or less. Every call, every time, this is my career path, this is what I do. The double A's, red, white, and blue. Get your call on. Here comes American. Get your lights on. Here comes American. Get your gurney on. Here comes American. Get your gloves on. Here comes American. Get your save on. Okay, so um, today we're talking about uh, child abuse. This is a sensitive topic, um, especially with in the era of COVID. We're seeing a lot more of this. You know, kids are not in school. Um, we're seeing a lot of this in the hospital. Uh, Sajin, tell, tell us a little bit about it. Yeah, so unfortunately, it's one of those things that is not really a chief complaint. It's not really something that EMS providers are going to be called out for knowing this ahead of time. They're not going to be called out by dispatch to um, a child abuse case. It's usually it's going to be a new onset seizure or a child who fell accidentally or someone who's not acting right. And it's really important to keep in mind that any of those cases could be potential child abuse cases. And it's important to really maintain a high level of suspicion. And of course, we never want to expect this or suspect this. And we want to be able to trust the parents of these children. Um, But unfortunately, it's pretty common. And as you were saying, Danielle, especially when there are times of being cooped up in a house with your family, and there are life stressors and um, social stressors, it becomes all too common. And I think to our mandatory reporters, our teachers, clergy, church groups, right, um, EMS workers, healthcare, and if you're at home cooped up because of a pandemic, then no one's engaging these kids to report the suspicious break or the suspicious bruise. Um, there are different types of maltreatment, right? So I traditionally think of physical abuse. But there's also sexual abuse, psychological abuse, and just neglect. Um, and so those are there's different ways to think of abuse. So neglect is basically when somebody just doesn't really um, react or they fail to act um, as a parent or caretaker. So maybe it was just the kid was left alone too long and they got into something or, you know, they're just not feeding the child. So it can be a lot more of a subtle presentation. And just to give a sense of how many like pediatric calls we go on in general here at American Ambulance. So in 2019, all the pediatric, which they define as less than age 12 calls, were about 9,000. Now, of those pediatric calls, the ones that were trauma, so pediatric trauma calls were only 1,900. So the calls that were going on under age 12 is not that great. It's uh, you know about 2,000 calls over the whole year. And what percentage of those are child abuse? A lot of times we don't know. You know, The medic will not know that on scene. Even us in the ER don't know yet. It seems like social work or other people figure it out. So let's talk about nationally or what the studies say on how often this is. Unfortunately, as we were saying, it's a little more common and a little more fatal than we'd like to think. Um, More than 40% of deaths from child abuse occur from children younger than one year of age. And the most common cause of death in long-term disabilities, abusive head injury. And 30% of children with abusive head injury 
may be misdiagnosed on the initial evaluation. There's actually a landmark study in JAMA published in 1999 where 30% of abused children with head injuries had been seen by physicians and diagnosis was not recognized the first time. The mean time to correct diagnosis was seven days, ranging up to 189 days. And unfortunately, almost 30% were re-injured after the misdiagnosis. Um, It's thought that four out of five deaths in that group were unrecognized trauma that may have been prevented by earlier recognition. You know, I think one of the hardest things are um, we're not there to see the injury happen. So they come in, especially if they're under age 12 months, they're not talking. So we go on the story of who brought them in, the story of the caretaker. And if they can make up a good story, sadly, we believe them. Well, I think that's where it becomes really important for the medics to get stories from all members of the household available to give one. It's getting that history of what happened. And often the only thing that tips us off is that there's people giving different stories. So if the, if the story of what happened to this child isn't matching up from, you know, caretaker to caretaker or different members of the household, that is a huge red flag. I have to tell a story in the emergency department just about two years ago. I feel like um, one of the paramedics really saved me and saved this child because, um, you know, at RMC, we have a provider at triage system where patients come in and get screened. Then they get set in the back. And then that's when I saw them. So the patient had already been seen by EMS, seen by someone who screened them. And the patient came in a uh, 12-month-old with what we call an ALTI episode, right? Acute, altered. The story that the mom told me was, oh, the kid was eating and started choking turn blue, and then cleared it and looks better now. The kid looked amazing. We're like, oh, let's just send this kid home. But then I found the report, the American Ambulance uh, run sheet, right? And I read it. And the story on the run sheet is patient was with boyfriend. Patient was eating, started choking, turned blue. You know, patient had to do, they had to do some kind of intervention and then got brought in. So I'm like, oh, why is this woman saying? So I go back and say, hey, were you with the kid or was your boyfriend who's with the kid? Oh, no, I was with the kid. I was totally with the kid, and I thought, oh, this is too fishy. So we scanned the kid's kid head, and the head, the kid had head bleed. And so we would have never suspected a head bleed. The kid didn't have any bruising on them. I mean, they're, you know, like 12 months old. They kind of sit there. They don't like the doctor. They're kind of crying, but they were consolable. But if it hadn't been that the medic wrote down, which is kind of, a, you know, kind of interesting information, you know, with boyfriend, boyfriend watching child, I would have never suspected it because the mom was saying that she was with them. So documentation really does matter. It really does. And especially in COVID times when we don't have all the family that comes to the hospital anymore, we're not transporting all the entire household. Um, the, the rest of the caretakers can't come into the emergency department for us to question them. Um, the EMS providers are really our only source, our only eyes into the house and into the environment that the, the patient came from. And it becomes way more important. That's true. Sometimes if they say, oh, the house had a lot of drug paraphernalia around or the house looked pretty in disarray and that you know, no one seems to be watching this kid, like that really raises our heckles, whereas we don't know that um, unless they tell us. So it really matters. And we know that all this is really important. Um, of course, child abuse is never a good thing for the child, but we just have more and more information that not only does it affect them in the short term, but also as long term adverse events. So there's something called ACEs or adverse childhood experiences. Um, big study through Kaiser and Dr. Filetti in the late 90s that showed that all these adverse childhood experiences actually contribute to poor physical health um, 
as you age. So they have, they've linked these things all the way from um, child sexual abuse or physical abuse or neglect associating with hypertension, hyperlipidemia, cardiac risk. And unfortunately, all these things are tied together. So it's really important for us to try and minimize this and catch this as, as quick as possible. So the more we prevent now as a child, the healthier they can be as an adult. Right. So there are a few things that we look for that may tip us off that, hey, something fishy is going on here. And there are things that when we are called out to specific complaints that we should have this in the back of our heads, that we should always be thinking about um, suspected non-accidental trauma. Um, So any head injury, any seizures, difficulty breathing, apnea means no breathing or lifelessness, all these things are really suggestive of an abusive head injury, as opposed to unintentional head injury, where the parent may call for the children not acting right or being a little tired and or directly following the injury as opposed to having some delay in care. So Patil, I think the American Academy of Pediatrics and uh, Emergency Medicine Society have actually come up with a few symptoms that are um, pretty suggestive of abuse or neglect. You remind us of those? Okay, so some of the things that we look out for are apnea or an acute life-threatening event, seizure, vomiting without diarrhea, soft tissue scalp swelling, bruising, and nonspecific neurologic symptoms. So this could just be some lethargy, fussiness, poor feeding in a baby, the mom or dad or whoever is with the with the child will say they're just not acting right. Um, and, you know, these are a lot of vague you know, general symptoms. These are things we see all the time. And really that's why, you know, we just have to think about them all the time. And you're just always trying to like get the story. Now it's interesting that in the ER, so someone comes and said, my kid fell and there's the Canadian head CT rolls, right? In the pediatric, the PCARN. Um, If there's any swelling, right? Or bruising above the clavicles, we CAT scan them, right? If they're under um, 12 months. So it's interesting that they also put down soft tissue scalp swelling and bruising. So we think we see anything on a little kid. And think about those of you who are parents at home or have nieces and nephews, when they fall down, they don't bruise that easily. They kind of toddle back up because it's their own body weight, falling onto a floor, falling onto something. Once they have scalp swelling, edema, they have bruising, it makes us more suspicious of actually something going on inside their brain, and they would get a CAT scan if they're under age two and come in the emergency department. And the East Trauma Association um, also has highlighted one of the hospitals in Tacoma, Washington, Mary Bridge Children's Hospital, they have a great protocol that they've developed for all of their surrounding programs, where if they meet any of these specific criteria, then they actually take them as transfers, no questions asked, um, to evaluate for suspected uh, child abuse. And so the things from the history that are really important, again, as Patil mentioned earlier, inconsistent history from multiple caregivers, just as Danielle had said in her case as well. Um, If you're having multiple people giving you different stories, that's a sign that maybe something else is going on here. If there's ever a history of unwitnessed injury, so if nobody saw the kid fall or nobody saw them get into the hot tub, um, that's, again, another reason to suspect something different. If there's ever a delay in seeking care, if they fell two days ago and now the parents are just bringing them in now, what made you wait so long? If the child has prior ED visits, if they're only one years old and they've been in the ED 10 times, um, that may make you suspicious. 
that there's any history of domestic violence at home. Um, of course, violence begets violence, so we should always be worried about the environment that these children are raised in. And then there are conditions, of course, of no fault of the child, um, but if they are premature or if they have chronic chronic medical conditions or low birth weight, that just means they mean they needed a little extra attention. And sometimes parents can get a little frustrated um, when they have to do a few more things than normal. And it can be a red flag if they have any of these things. And again, at this hospital, they actually will take any transfers if they meet any of these criteria to to fully evaluate the social situation shows the importance of uh, the social workers and everybody delving into that background of that family to see what's going on for that child. And when we talk about ambulatory kids, you know, kids who run, walk, jump, you know, they're usually over age two by the time they're doing those activities. You you normally see bruises on the extensor surfaces. So their elbows, their knees, their foreheads. And you can see that in kids all the time, right? Their shins are so banged up and bruised up. But honestly, we ignore those bruises. The bruises that really kind of... um, uh, make us like get our heckles up or us really start to worrying or bruises on the torso, bruises on the ears, bruises on the neck. And then if you're under age four months, remember four month olds are like, like vegetables. They don't go very far. They just lay right there. Um, they're barely rolling over. So if they have any bruising on them, we really need to be suspicious. Right. So that's the 10-4 rule um, that was came, comes from a paper published in Pediatrics in 2010 um, that 10- T-E-N stands for torso, ears, and neck, and then 10-4 being four months of age. So if you see any bruising in these areas or in this, really this uh, age group, it's really suspicious. Um, There's a saying, if you don't cruise, you don't bruise, meaning if you're not really moving around, you're not really crawling or walking, then you really shouldn't have many bruises. Yeah, like if you're eight weeks old, you shouldn't have an arm fracture, for example, because you're not really using your arms yet. Right. That was actually a case that I had um, where an eight-weeker came in after rolling off of the bed and mom noticed that she wasn't using her arm anymore. And the baby was with her boyfriend at the time. And she got him back later that evening. And then two days later presented to the emergency department. So already a couple of red flags there. Um, and unfortunately, the, the child had a broken uh, arm, and we had to do a whole skeletal survey and admit them to the hospital and everything. Um, but again, a lot of those red flags, delay in seeking care, um, rolling at age eight months, typically that doesn't happen eight for- Eight weeks. Or sorry, eight weeks, um, which doesn't happen for a few months. And um, any fracture in that sort of age group really should raise your suspicion. I think, too, also a reminder that um, babies don't even really have real bones yet, right? They're all, like, cartilaginous and still moving, especially at eight weeks. Like, that's how they get out of the birth canal so easily that their their bones are not super, super solid. So to break, actually, a radius of an eight-week-old, that's a lot of force because they're, like, you know, talking about, like, they're it's not a hard stick that's like a tree stick, right? It's like a green stick. It's very um, – it's hard to break a bone. And there are some other signs um, that we should look out for besides just bruising or broken bones. Um, Torn frenulum, which is the piece of tissue that is under your tongue or under your lips that holds your lips to your gums. Um, That if that is torn, that's actually a sign that their baby is being force fed or things are being placed into the mouth really forcefully. Sometimes there's a lot of bottle propping, a lot of things. If someone props a bottle, it won't tear their frenulum. It will just fall out or fall over. So that means you're like really applying some force to that baby's mouth. 
I know there's like submersion and immersion patterns also, right? So if you feel like um, the baby's feet were placed in hot water, there'll be like a line on their ankles that are burnt. Like a if your kid tries to crawl in on their own, they're usually going to put one toe in first or just a part of the foot, not an exact line. So you don't see those submersion or immersion patterns. Any burns with exact lines are kind of suspicious. So submersion, immersion, but also if you see the exact pattern of an object on them. So I had a case one time that it actually looked like, um, you know, the iron that you iron your clothes with, that iron was on a child's body and you could see the outline of the iron. And that was just blatant abuse. And I saw one like cigarette burns. You can see like the perfect hole, like someone had um, been putting on their skin. So I think when you see like perfect circles or we've all burnt ourselves, we've all had kids who burn themselves or never perfect circles or never perfect outlines. It's usually just a red mark. And so when you start seeing those demarcated burns, you got to be really suspicious. Seizures is a hot one. I feel bad. The new onset seizure could just be their epilepsy starting, but that really should raise your suspicion. And also, um, like Sajan talked about, not wanting to go to the hospital or hesitancy to go to the hospital or to seek medical care. So let's talk about how we would manage this. First of all, who, who has to report? Who's a mandatory reporter? Fortunately, we all are. If anybody sus- suspects this, if anyone sees any signs of this, anyone meets any of these red flags, then we should really be reporting this to CPS and our state service. So it's the EMS provider uh, responsibility, physician, nurse, social worker. Um, it's kind of like anyone at any point of healthcare that is seeing these children is a mandated reporter. And I think it's fine for multiple people to report, right? So one of the things is we don't really know the whole situation. I think especially in EMS and also the emergency department, like I'm seeing them for a snapshot of time. Maybe they go hospital shops. Maybe they go to Clovis sometimes and then they go to Fresno other times. They go to Children's other times. But if I make that report, well, then CPS can figure out all these different instances and kind of put it together. And they can say my report's nothing and, and blow it off. But I feel like it's our job to just notify them that, hey, this is suspicious. Now, let's say if there's a cop already on the scene, um, is it enough for the EMS provider just to walk up to that cop and talk about their suspicions? I think legally, yes. But here at American Ambulance, we would like them to take the time to fill out the reports. And we're going to have a special guest today, uh, Mr. Ben Garcia, from our operations team at American Ambulance to let us know what the American Ambulance way of doing this is. All right. Thank you, Ben, for joining us today. You know, um, you've been a part of our operations team for a while. Why don't you tell us about yourself? Sure. My name is Ben Garcia. I'm the uh, operations manager here at American Ambulance. I've uh, been here a little over uh, 19 years. Started out as an EMT, became a paramedic. I became a field supervisor, and now I'm fortunate enough to be here as the uh, operations manager. Fantastic. Are you a local boy too, or did you come here for the job? Uh, no, I've been here for the majority of my life. So probably a good uh, 30 years I've been here. So Fantastic. Fres, yes, we like that. Well, thanks for coming today. And you know, our topic is uh, non-accidental trauma and child abuse. So we'd really like you to just highlight for us, like if a medic's on a call, an EMT's on a call, and they have a suspicion of child abuse, what's the operational flow? What do you want them to do? Who do they report it to? How does that work? Sure. You know, we, we come into contact with a lot of people. We see a lot of different things. And, um, you know, and sometimes we have some reasonable suspicion, right? Uh, with reasonable suspicion, is it will kind of prompt us to say, hey, something needs to be done here. Um, and in that case, you know, we could, uh, we can report both uh, child and elderly abuse to make sure that, you know, it doesn't continue. So, but for the 
paramedics in the field, we want to make sure that they definitely complete an APS or a CPS form and that we report it to those specific agencies, the uh, APS and CPS. We are mandated reporters, so by law, we do need to report these uh, reasonable suspicions to them. Uh, and, and the process is pretty simple. We can uh, complete uh, APS form, which is found in uh, the clipboards. Uh, we have those on the ambulance. Uh, once those are completed, we need to make a phone call as well to the uh, respective uh, departments, APS or CPS, uh, and give a verbal report. Um, those numbers, um, you can find them online. Uh, you can also ask the communications department to put a call out to them to call you. Uh, but we need to make sure that we do that as soon as possible. Great. I think that verbal report is really important. Um, and then, uh, you know, following up with that formal written. Uh, report to the agencies. Yeah. So once the uh, the report is complete, they can just hand that uh, report to the field supervisor and the field supervisor will uh, fax that over to um, the, the respective department. So that way they have that. So they have a good picture of what they see. Um, and I think that's really important to help the APS or CPS kind of intervene on what may be going on. And we were talking about earlier in the podcast, you know, with the land of COVID going on, um, it's really hard for us to see into the homes. And so as uh, EMS professionals, you guys have a window into this situation, the living situation that nobody else has. You're the first ones walking in. So being able to write that down on your PCR, kind of share what you saw, what you see, what the kind of family dynamics are is really important. Absolutely. You know, we, we have a lot of experience, right? We see a lot of stuff in uh, in this county. And I think that's can be a kind of a blessing to help some of these people that are in need because we rely on our experience, what we've seen and, and what we do to, to help these people. And then um, what are your recommendations, um, say for a brand new medic out there who doesn't have a ton of experience yet? Like, I'm guessing you would advise them like not to confront the family or not to bring it up just to like get out of there because it could be unsafe for them too. Or what's your advice um, from your 30 years of experience? You know, I would say just, you know, run the call. You know, if you have your suspicions, take note, take a mental note of those. Um, if that patient is the victim, uh, remove that patient, you know, just calmly, uh, respectfully uh, remove them from that situation. Take them to the hospital. Make sure that uh, when you do your turnover to advise the staff there at the hospital and then make your contact to either uh, APS or CPS to, to make sure that they are aware. But I think the safest thing for everybody is to just remove them from the situation in a calm, respectful manner. Uh, and I think that'll keep everybody safe. Now, how does the police interact with you? I know they're not called to all calls. Like sometimes police is on scene with um, EMS and sometimes it's by themselves. So does the police get activated later if they suspect child abuse? Or is that more you file the CPS complaint and then police get involved? The law enforcement usually is simultaneously dispatched. Um, but in some cases, it could be just, hey, my kid um, has been having a stomach ache for, uh, you know, the last, you know, four days. But then you, you kind of, you have a conversation with the family, you talk to the patient and you kind of, you know, find some little details and facts that, hey, this might be uh, a case. And it, you know, you, it gives you that uh, reasonable suspicion that something's going on and law enforcement may not be there. Right. Um, so that in that case, we would, you know, depart, you know, respectfully and um, safely uh, and then just do a turnover and alert whoever needs to be alerted. Do you have a case that stands in your mind from all your past of, not to put you on the spot, I apologize, of a child abuse case that uh, really re you remember? Some of these cases are kind of traumatizing to all of us, and so we remember them, but I'm not sure if you have one that sticks out in your mind. Yeah, you know, I have a, a, just a, a vague memory, and I was probably 
um, a year or two into being a paramedic because I remember I was terrified. You know, there was just these marks that were not normal on this uh, this kid, and, and it was an abdominal pain. You know, the kid had been throwing up for some time, um, and there was just these linear red marks across his back. Um, he had no history of rash or, you know, being you know, no fall, no trauma. So I just reported it. I reported it because there was some reasonable suspicion. They were tender. Um, you know, when you were kind of just doing an assessment, you lift up the shirt to kind of look at the abdomen and stuff like that. Um, and it was, it was just something was not right. Uh, I don't know what actually came about, but there was something that was not right. And, you know, worst comes to the worst, they say it was nothing. But in some cases, it could be that something that saves that kid's life. Right. And you did the due diligence of reporting it. I wish there was more follow-up on our system. Sometimes our system takes so long that I feel like us in the ED and you out in the field, we don't ever hear back, like, whatever happened with that kid or the kid do okay, but at least you could sleep all night knowing that you reported that to the authorities. Exactly. Exactly. You just give everybody the, the, the best opportunity possible and um, just do what you can. Great. Thanks, Ben, for sharing. Thanks and, for having me. Um, now, say you were a paramedic working in the field and you were unsure of you forgot. You forgot what you're supposed to do. They could always call the field soup, though, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. The field supervisors are there to help you answer any questions, give you uh, some guidance. Most of them have plenty and plenty of experience. You know, they're 10 years plus uh, experience as paramedics, and uh, they're always there willing to help you. And they're there 24 hours a day. 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 <laughs> days a year. Perfect. Wonderful. So we'll call the field soup. Uh, thanks so much. Thanks for joining us. All right. Thank you for having me. All right. So thanks. This has been a wonderful podcast. We just want to give the crew some final take-home points. They don't remember anything else, but what are they going to remember? Sajin, what are your, what's your take-home point on this? My take-home point for today is going to be suspicious patterns of bruising. Don't forget the 10-4 rule, T-E-N-4, torso, ears, neck, children under the age of four months old really shouldn't have bruising in that sort of pattern or that sort of age group. Patio. I would just say that your story is really important. So as much detail as you can get of what happened to a child, uh, no matter what your call is for, um, to get the story um, and to detail it in the PCR, because um, that is valuable information. Uh, we look for it specifically in the hospital, um, and it really helps to put together the pieces of the story. Yes, and my take home point is kind of the age-appropriate injuries that um, Sajin talked about, but also, you know, we didn't really mention the elderly, but basically anyone who can't tell their own story. So maybe they're altered and demented as an elderly person, elderly abuse, or they're a child under 12 months who can't talk yet, or they're a disabled child who has autism. If they can't tell their story, we need the medic to write as many details as they can in their PCR to give us that story. So if we get a conflicting story later on, our suspicions can go up. Thanks, everyone, and hope you join us for our next and upcoming podcast. Every other Wednesday, we drop a new podcast. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. If you guys like the American Ambulance EMS podcast and you feel like this has been useful for you, please give us a five-star review on the iTunes store so that we can move up in the ratings so that uh, other uh, pre-hospital professionals can listen to us as well. Um, and we're also taking any solicitations for ideas or, or topics that you want covered, and you can email us anytime at podcast at americanambulance.com. Once again, that's podcast at americanambulance.com. Thanks. Thank you for joining us on the American Ambulance EMS podcast produced by American Ambulance in Fresno, California. The views of the guests and the hosts of this show are their own and don't necessarily reflect the views of American Ambulance or UCSF Fresno. The theme song for the show is written and performed by Roshan Roach. The beats were created by Young Pear and Brett Schoenwald. 
And I'm John Mark Bergen, American Ambulance's media producer, saying thanks for joining us. Have a great shift and stay safe out there.